Good morning. I'm impressed that anyone showed. I wanted to stay in bed this morning. So, uh, if you would like, uh, during the sermon, feel free if you start getting a bit tired or drowsy. Um, there's warm coffee, hot coffee in the back, and hot water for tea, so make yourself at home. Um, I was... There, there are moments, you know, as a church planter, your fear is always every Sunday, like even today, like I'm always wondering, will anyone show up? I'm like, right, it's cold, everyone's probably still in bed, it's a bit dreary. This will be the Sunday that no one will show, right? And, and I arrived here this morning, and there was a team of about 20 people here making this service possible. And I'm just so grateful for all the, the people who invest so much time and energy in making the Table Church possible. From the band to the tech crew to the people who do the slides and the setup and so many other people. Can we just give them a hand this morning? And like Richard said, if you want to be connected and engaged with the Table Church, um, if you want to come immediately after service, we'll have some pizza. We'll just talk a bit more about our mission and ministry. Um, and then next week, we'll offer an opportunity to discover your purpose and figure out how you can get engaged. And I'd really encourage you to take an opportunity to engage with the Table Church. I think you'll like us better. I think you'll be more fulfilled. In fact, on the stage today, um, Andy playing guitar. Andy's been here at our, the Table Church for about six weeks. Like, and, and the guy in the drums, Andrew, Andy and Andrew, um, Andrew's been here like three or four weeks, and he's uh, rocking out in the drums. So the point is, how cool is that? So the point is, you should do something. Um, <laughs> Has anyone ever, did, did, did you all watch the Super Bowl? No? Okay. So people who watch the Super Bowl, I, I just watched most of the commercials the next day online. And, um, but the one commercial that really stuck out to me was Airbnb. Did anyone see the Airbnb commercial? And Airbnb has a way of creating commercials that really connect with something deep inside of us. A couple of years ago, they ran a, a couple different campaigns. The one was called Is Mankind? And it's kind of this playoff of, is mankind or is man good? It's kind of, in retrospect, it was kind of a creepy commercial. It said something along the lines of, is mankind? Here's how you'll know. Look in their windows. Sleep in their bed. Eat at their table. <laughs> and like, I get what you're trying to do. It's a little weird. But the other, the other commercial, the other commercial that Airbnb had was called Never a Stranger. And so I just wanted to quickly show you this commercial this morning. Dear stranger, when I booked this trip, my friend said I was crazy. Why would I stay in someone else's house? But this morning, a city I've never been to felt like one I already knew. Everyone in your neighborhood was so warm and friendly. And your home, your home was perfect. And peaceful. Reminded me of my friends. It felt like I had known them for years. It was almost like family. I just wanted to thank you for sharing your world with me. It felt like home. Airbnb. 
I mean, how good is that? I am going to go home today and sign up for an Airbnb vacation. Listen to this line. When I was at your home, your friends felt like I'd known them for years. It was almost like family. Thanks for sharing your world. It felt like home. I mean, that's so good. This is what I want when I travel. I want to meet beautiful people and hang out, and their home feels like my home, and their, their friends feel like family. I mean, that's so good. But at the same time, um, uh, Home Away, which is an, a competitor of Airbnb, Home Away had their own commercial that they, that they offered as an alternative to this commercial, and it has um, Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec narrating. So watch this one. <laughs> Sharing is caring. That's what they told us. Let's share them. Now we'll share anything. Our personal details, our personal space, even our vacations. You didn't travel 2,000 miles to share a pool with that guy. That's your pool. That's a shared pool. Your evening. Shared evening. Yours. Shared. Yours. Shared. Shared. Definitely not yours. And all yours. It's your vacation. Why share it? Book the whole house at homeaway.com. I think these two commercials set up the tension of Genesis 1 through 3 perfectly, <laughs> right? The one is the world as we want it to be, as we hoped it would be, a world of beauty and peace and sharing meals with strangers and they feel like family, and the other is the world as it really is. We began by exploring Genesis 1 and 2, the, the beautiful world that God created, a world of peace and harmony and joy a world where we are invited to become co-creators, to, to join God in helping the world become all that it was intended to be. We, we live in a world where we long for beauty, a world of peace, because God created that desire deep inside of us. But as we talked about last week, that the world is not perfect. In fact, uh, Francis Buford, in a, a phenomenal little book called Unapologetic, put it bluntly, and I will, I will give us the PG version, but he put it bluntly. He said, humans have a propensity to F things up. Or as the great theologian Kendrick Lamar said, <laughs> I, I F'd up, homie, you F'd up, but God got us and we're going to be all right. Genesis 3 through 11 tells us through narrative form that something we already knew intuitively, that humanity has a way of messing things up. And at its core, there is a brokenness that stems from the unraveling of relationship. The unraveling of relationship between us and the Creator, between us and creation, and between us as humans. And against the backdrop of Genesis 1 through 11, of the unraveling of relationship, God begins the process of restoration, of hitting the reset button. And so in Genesis 12, in Genesis 12, we get a glimpse of God hitting the reset button. 
And from Genesis 12 on, right, this is, this is kind of what we're going to look at today is key to understanding and interpreting the Hebrew Scriptures. Because from Genesis 12 to Malachi, it is a story of God's attempt to restore and redeem creation through humanity. God does not bypass our choice or our freedom, but unrelentingly seeks a relationship with us and seeks to redeem and restore creation. But for whatever reason, God works to redeem creation through humanity. This is what's happening in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. God is trying to redeem and restore creation. And so we pick up the story in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It'll also be on the screen. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land and your family and your father's household for the land that I will show you. Remember we talked about a couple weeks ago the idea of separation, filling, and blessing. That God calls people to separate themselves, to, to remove themselves from their current situation. He then fills them with his spirit. He blesses them and then sends them out to be a blessing to the world. Right. So he calls Abram to leave his land, his home. And he says this, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name respected, and you will be a blessing. There's two key things in this passage you should underline. The first is land. Land is a key concept to understanding the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. The idea that they will be a people of the land is key to their understanding of who they are. God has promised them a land. And so in Genesis 12, we get the first glimpse of that promise, that they will have a land. And the other word that's key is blessing. If you remember in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we begin with God blesses creation and it flourishes. But then in Genesis 3, God curses the creation. And in Genesis 12, what we find is the reversal of the curse. Through Abraham, God begins the reverse of the curse. And God will once again bless the creation. God will once again bless the creation through Abraham and his offspring. God will once again bring forth freedom and will remove shame from the story. And God makes a few big promises to Abram. He tells him this in both Genesis 12 and then actually we continue the story in Genesis 15, but we're not going to read it all today. But he says this, he says, look, your descendants will be as, as, as numerous as the stars in the sky. Right? Not like a DC sky, but a desert sky where there is like a gazillion stars. Right? You, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars, and your name will be great, and you will be the father of a great nation. The restoration has become, begun. It looks as if all is going to be well in the world. This, this, this guy Abram and his descendants are going to be a means of blessing the creation. But the problem is, Abram or Abraham is not a moral exemplar. If you want to feel better about yourself and your own failures and your own shortcomings, just read the story of Abraham. This is a guy, this is a guy who tried to sell his wife into slavery twice. My wife, the first time, we'd be done, right? So he tries to do it twice. <laughs> Then, then when God makes him this amazing promise and the promise does not happen on the timeline that he wants it to take place, 
He then, he was supposed to have children or have a great nation, which means he's got to have a kid. He's not having kids at the speed that he wants to. And so he goes and he sleeps with the housekeeper, has a kid with her, and then ends up kicking her out and essentially abandoning her and her son to the desert. Right? This is the story of Abraham. It's a story of failure. But the story continues that he has a son. He has actually multiple sons. But his son, Isaac, who's key to the story, Isaac also uh, begins a family. And Isaac also tries selling his wife to the same guy, Abimelech, that Abraham tries to sell his wife to. Then Isaac has a number of kids. And Isaac's son, Jacob, ends up having a lot of kids with several women. It's a train wreck, right? If you think your family's messed up, you should read these stories, right? This is a really messed up family. Um, but Jacob, Jacob has, he has multiple wives. He ends up having 12 kids. There's all this sibling rivalry. It gets so bad that they end up selling one of their brothers off into slavery, and we know about him today only because of the Broadway musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Coat. But Jacob... This guy has such a messed up story. His kids are so broken. Read Genesis 38. It's the most messed up story in all the Bible. Guarantee you, Genesis 38. But the same guy, Jacob, would change his name to Israel, and his 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. And these same people are found in the lineage and the story of Jesus. And at the end, as Genesis concludes, one of the promises is fulfilled. The descendants of Abraham are numerous. But as, Gen but as Exodus opens, they are not a great nation. They are not a respected people. And in fact, they are slaves in a foreign land. And for 400 years, they are slaves in a foreign land. And not only that, they are not a nation. But it seems that God's presence has been removed from their midst. And then there's this amazing moment where God comes and delivers them through the exodus into, and takes them from the, frees them from the enemy and takes them into the desert. And they're led out into the wilderness. And when, when they're in the wilderness, God begins to, to give them guidelines of what does it look like to live as the people of God. It reminds them of their calling, right? That you were to be a nation that, and through you, all the other nations of the world will be blessed. There's a, call, a unique calling and purpose that's on their lives. And in the desert, God begins to tell them, but this is what life with God looks like. This is what it looks like to be the people of God. This is how your life together will look. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And the first section of the Ten Commandments deals with our relationship with God. And the core of the first section of the Ten Commandments is the idea of idolatry. Like, don't have any other gods before me. And what is an, what's an idol? It's the thing that you give ultimate significance in your life. I'm glad we don't do that anymore, right? I'm glad we don't put any other, give other things ultimate significance. So here's, he's saying, look, don't have any other idols before you. And then the second half of the Ten Commandments deals with our relationship with our neighbor. Love of God, love of neighbor. And he begins to say, look, this is what it looks like to be the people of God. And then we find in the story that God dwells, comes and dwells among them, that his presence rests with them. And for them, it was symbolized, or, it, or less, more than symbolized, it was very really 
realized in the tabernacle, this traveling tabernacle where God's presence rested. And for them, they believed that as long as they had this tabernacle in the Ark of the Covenant, that God's presence would go with them wherever they went, and God would fight their battles for them. And God wants to dwell with them, and he wants to make them a great nation, a kingdom of priests, so that they might be a light to the world, and that all the nations would be blessed through their purpose, through their mission, and through their lives. It's not for Israel. It's for the world. It's for a cosmic purpose. Israel's life with God was supposed to be so compelling and was supposed to be a light to the world and that everyone would say, we want our life, our country, to look like that. They were supposed to so live into God's purposes that all the nations of the world would be drawn to the light. And finally, we kind of fast forward in the story, and finally they enter the land. And so in the book of Judges, they enter the land, and they have God's presence in their midst, and it seems as if finally the story is going to begin to to take a turn for the better. But by the book of Judges, let me back up. First of all, to to get into the land, the land is occupied by the Canaanites. Now, it's really disturbing. If you go and read the the book of Judges, it appears like it's God-ordained genocide to get into the land, but we're not going to go there today. If you want to go there, there's a great book called The Bible Tells Me So where it kind of explores this idea because it really would take an entire book to talk about it. But funny side note, so I'm in the metro and I'm reading The Bible Tells Me So, and it's First of all, it's kind of a funny title, and it's bright yellow. The, the cover is like as bright a yellow as you can possibly have. And um, so I'm sitting there, and you can kind of see that the person next to me is kind of captivated by, what's this guy reading, this bright yellow book? Kind of looks like a children's book. It says, the Bible tells me so. <laughs> and you can kind of see, we're sitting in the metro, and her eyes kind of go over to look at, like, what the chapter title is. And the chapter title is, if God commits genocide, what's so wrong with killing a few people? And you can just, like... <laughs> No joke, she scoots as far away as she possibly can. And at the next stop, gets up and moves. But by the book of Judges, they become just like the Canaanites. And one of the central commands that they received was, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Right? There shall be no other god other than Yahweh. But by, by this point in the story, they begun to adopt the local the local gods of Canaan. And the phrase that we hear over and over in Judges, and we're actually going to do a three-week series on the book of Judges in a few weeks, Um, but the phrase that we receive over and over and over again was that there was no king in the land, or that God did not rule in the land, and everyone did as they pleased. There was no king in the land, and everyone did as they pleased. And in Judges, like in Genesis, things spiral out of control. And then in 1 Samuel, in 1 Samuel, God calls this young kid, Samuel, who who is anointed as both a judge and as a priest and a prophet. And Samuel anoints the first king, which is Saul, right? Saul's the first king of Israel. He anoints the first king, and then the Saul's reign goes bad really quickly. And while Saul is still king, Samuel anoints David as the king. And so things get so bad during this, this, this period when Samuel first kind of comes on the scene that things are so bad that the Ark of the Covenant, 
right? The, the thing that represented God's presence in their midst, that the ark is stolen, right, by their enemy. Now, and this is how they see it, this is how you're supposed to read the story, right? If you're reading this, if you were an ancient Hebrew reading the story, this is how you read the story, that things got so bad that God's presence was stolen from their midst and that God now resided with their enemy. And over and over again, they're overcome by their enemies, by the surrounding nations, because they are living outside of their mission and purpose. The story of Scripture reads, the story of the Hebrew Scripture reads something like this. Look, if you live into the vision of justice and love and mercy that I have called you to, not just Israel, but all the nations, that God has your back. But for whatever reason, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, is we are so fearful of letting others into our country because they might harm us, right? I'm thinking about, it seems that Christians are the most fearful of all. We seem to be more concerned than anyone else. And the scriptures are clear that if we live, if we are if we live into God's purposes and we, are, we enact justice and we act kindly and we act righteously, that God has our back. But then Samuel is born and he anoints Saul to be king and then young David as king of Israel. And David will establish a nation under God. It seems that maybe under David things will finally take a turn for the better. And then David's son Solomon builds a temple, right? The permanent resting place. Up until this point, God had been kind of hanging out in this tent that was carted from one place to the next. And so finally, they, have, they, are, they are great. They're, they're numerous, they, which is one of the promises. They are now a great nation. Like David and Solomon build Israel into a, like a, a force to be reckoned with. They are a powerful kingdom. And now there is the temple, the permanent resting place of God in their midst. And you have to think, at this moment, it must seem like Eden has returned. Right? This is what this is all about, right? The reversal, the return to Eden. It must seem that Eden has returned. God is among his people. Peace and prosperity reign. This is one of the most peaceful periods for, for Israel. Peace and prosperity reign. They're rich and they're powerful and they're well-respected. But as quickly as things go well, they begin to unravel once again. And Solomon turns and begins to worship other gods. And they once again fail to live into their calling and purpose. And after Solomon's death, the country is torn in two. The northern tribes, the ten tribes in the north, they are wiped out by the Assyrian army, never to be heard of again. The southern tribes of Judah, the two tribes of Judah, they continue on a bit longer, and then finally they are carted off into exile, which is where all these texts get compiled. They are carted off into exile. And in the Babylonian exile, as they're thinking and reading and pulling all these stories together to create the, the, the Old Testament as we know it today, they have lost everything. They are no longer a great nation. The temple has been turned to rubble. And they are once again slaves in a foreign land. And so this section ends with the land being gone, the temple being torn down, and the people of God being scattered. 
And from Abraham to Solomon, God continues over and over and over to call Israel to be a light to all the nations so that he might redeem all creation and bless the world through them. But they continue to worship other things. They continue to put other things in place of God. They begin to put other things as the ultimate, the other things as the ultimate importance in their lives. And over and over again, they use their blessing for their own selfish purposes and ambition. They use their blessing for their own purposes and selfish ambition. But then, but then through the prophets, and we're just going to skim on this, but through the prophets, God promises Israel that they will be brought back into the land and that there is someone coming who will heal their land and will bring a new covenant and will restore their hearts so that they can truly serve God all hope is not lost. But that's for next week. Pastor Angela is going to bring us a sermon next week. But, but, but what, I, what I want to kind of dig down on here is this fascinating question in this story. Why doesn't God just start over again? If I'm God, I just wipe them out. Or why doesn't he drop down salvation? Right? Just a little sprinkle a little salvation and everyone begins to act as they should. I think we get a glimpse in, in Genesis chapter 15 to the answer to this question. In Genesis chapter 15, it's, a, it's an odd passage. It, it's the same section we know of well because Paul pulls on it. In, in Genesis 15, God makes all these promises to Abram or Abraham that he's going to be a great nation, that his descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. And in Genesis 15, 6, we get a pivotal, we get a pivotal line that says this, and Paul picks up on this later, but it says, and he believed the Lord, Abraham, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Essentially saying this, that because he had faith in what God said he would do, it was, he was put in right standing with God. And, we and Paul builds on this later to say, look, stop worrying about are you in right relationship with God? Just take a step towards God in faith and know that you are in right relationship with God. It's about taking the next step. This is powerful. But immediately following this, immediately following this, the same guy whose, right, whose faith is credited to him as righteousness, the same guy immediately after this says, well, but, but God, how do I know you're going to keep your promise? And I love this, I love this, because all too often, even as I take a step of faith, there's a voice in the back of my head of doubt that is hard to quiet. And so Abraham says, God, how do I know that you're going to do what you said you're going to do? And this is a really weird passage, what happens next. You should go and read it. But essentially, God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go get a bunch of animals, and I want you to split them in two and lay them side by side. So cut some animals in two. It's a really graphic passage. So Abraham like, starts cutting these animals in two and laying them side by side. And then, and then it, gets very, it gives really detailed instructions. Uh, vivid imagery. It says Abraham's standing there. I love this. He's standing there shooing away the vultures, right? Come on, stay away. This is God's special. God's going to do something special here. He's shooing away the vultures. And then he goes into a deep sleep. And in this deep sleep, God makes a covenant. God makes a covenant that he will do what he said he will do. And what this weird thing about the tearing the animals in two is something in the ancient Near Eastern world, what it essentially meant was that, that if I don't keep my word, 
May the thing that has happened to these animals happen to me. May I be ripped in two. This is graphic language. And the closest, right, we don't get covenant. Covenant's a weird thing, but covenant is a key word to understanding the Old Testament and what God is up to. And in Genesis 15, in Genesis 15, God binds himself to Abraham through covenant. And the closest thing we have is marriage. You are binding yourself to another person. And the best, the best definition of covenant that I've heard is this. I will be as to you as I should be, whether or not you are to me as you should be. I will be to you as I should be, whether or not you are as you should be to me. Now that doesn't mean we don't have an obligation, but, God's love, but God is saying my love will remain steadfast even when your love fails. Turning to a couple other great theologians to help us understand this, I think the idea of covenant we can kind of understand through um, Jay-Z and Beyonce. Um, when they got married, there's a song about this, there's a song about this, when they got married, they put a tattoo of their ring underneath their ring. And the, the line in the song goes that, that, that this ink doesn't come off even when the ring comes off. They're saying no matter what we're fighting about, even if we take our rings off, we can't end this because the ink doesn't come off. This is forever. And God enters a covenant with Abraham in a desert thousands of years ago and binds himself to Abraham. And he said, I am committed to saving and blessing the whole world through you and through your family, no matter what. It's a covenant that I'm making to setting the world right. And what we need to understand is that when Jesus comes on the scene thousands of years later, he understands his life and ministry and his mission against the backdrop of what happens in the desert thousands of years before. God will not, listen to me, God will not give up. I want to close with this story. I heard it this week or ran across it this week as I was preparing. Um, in 1989, our, the country of Armenia was hit with the worst earthquake, one of the worst earthquakes that's ever happened anyplace. It was an 8.2, 8.3 on the Richter scale. And one of the, the stories, one of the human interest stories that came out of the earthquake was of this young kid by the name of Armand and his father. And every day, Armand's father would drop him off at school, and he'd say, he'd look him in the eye and say, Armand, I will always be here for you. Remember that. I will always be here for you. Every single day, right as he was about ready to get out of the car, he'd say, Armand, I will always be here for you. And after the earthquake hit the city, his father, the first thing he did was he rushed to the school where Armand was a student, and he found literally that nothing was left of the school other than a pile of rubble. And the first thing, without th even thinking, his, the first thing that Armand's father did is he dove into the rubble and began pulling back chunks of plaster and bricks and stone and steel. First it was one hour, and then two hours, and then three hours, then four hours. And finally, other people who were standing by and watching began to say, look, it's a lost cause. They are dead. And he looked them in the eye and he says, look, you can either get busy digging or leave me alone. And four hours became eight hours, and eight hours became 16 hours, and 16 hours became 32 hours. And Amon's father continued digging 
and digging and digging. And at 38 hours, he began to hear a moan underneath. And he yelled, the, the father yelled out, Armand! Armand! And he heard his son reply, Papa. And underneath the rubble, there were 14 kids who were still alive, and they began, the rescue workers finally arrived, and they began to bring them all out. And as they were, as they were bringing the kids out, one by one, someone overheard Armand say to the other kids, See, I told you my father would come. I told you my father would come. This is a perfect picture of God. God does not give up on his promises. God continues to go after Israel because he wants to save the world through them. And in this moment in time when it seems that everything is unraveling at the seams and we sometimes wonder, do we have a hope and do we have a future? In a world where everything seems to be falling apart, I want us to hear this word of hope. That we place our hope in a God who will not give up on us. Let's pray.